Hosted by the Executive Director of Life Science Cares Bay Area, Aisha Barrow, this episode of Moving Forward, Giving Back is a panel discussion that explains how mentorship makes a workplace more reflective of the diverse patient population that the life sciences industry serves, while also fostering an inclusive workforce. Aisha is joined by Jennifer Condon, Vice President, Head of Talent Acquisition and Global Research and Development from Takeda, Trish Milliken, the CFO of Architects Therapeutics, and Dee Alamajay-Dragon, Vice President of People and Culture Strategy at Senti Bio. Good morning. Today I have the pleasure of introducing Dee Alamajay-Dragon uh, from Senti Bio. She's the Vice President of People and Culture Strategy. We also have Jennifer Condon, who's the Vice President and Head of Talent Acquisition and Global Research and Development at Akira. Finally, last but not least, we have Trisha Malekeb, who is the CFO at Architect Therapeutics. My name is Aisha Barrow. I'm the Executive Director of Life Science Cares in the Bay Area. I am very excited about this topic of mentoring in the industry. I got started in the industry back in 2004 as a summer intern at Roche Pharmaceuticals, and that internship led to a 15 years long career in biotech where I was at Roche Genentech for a combined 15 years, and then I, at another smaller company, MyOvent, for a year. And throughout that time, mentoring has played a great role in my career and continues to play an amazing role in my development here at Life Science Gears Bay Area. The topic of today is to understand from each of the panelists what role mentoring can play and how it can help the industry attract the best and most diverse talent that can help our patients be better represented so that they can have a voice that represents the diverse set of patients that we see in our industry. My first question to each of you, and I'm going to start with Dee for this question and then go to Jennifer and Trisha, is can you tell me how you got started in the industry, what drew you to it, and what role mentorship has played in your career? Thank you, Aisha. Very honored to be on this panel this morning. I've taken a pretty non-traditional path to my current role in both biopharma and just in general. I've always been someone who, from the very beginning when I was in college and thinking about a career, I just knew I wanted to help people. That was the extent of it. And everyone said, if you want to help people, you should go into human resources or personnel or staffing and, and some of those other terms that people used to use in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. My role currently as, as head of people or VP of people at Senti came just five years ago. So prior to five years ago, I had gone into HR. I didn't love it. I wanted to be in the part of HR people loved. Everyone said that was benefits. And so I went into benefits as a consultant. And over the years, as companies have done more for employees, it started to expand from benefits, moving into employee experience curation, moving into diversity, equity, and inclusion moving into employee engagement and over time expanded into all these different realms. And once all of that happened, I started to think to myself, I'm really now a shadow HR person. I should really think about going in-house, but I didn't think I would be able to find a role in any industry leading a people function without ever having been in the seat myself. Then came Senti, the rest is history. They took me on. I basically pitched the role as head of people, the first head of people at Senti. And again, now I've been here nearly five years. What mentorship did for me is something very interesting. People think of mentoring as something that's maybe a long-term, a more formal relationship. What mentoring did for me in real time coming into Senti 
was being asked the right questions once I was in the room. And I'm happy to talk more about that later, but that really was for me how I started to see mentoring as not just something you wait to be asked to do or wait to formally do, but something you have an opportunity to do every single day in every role you have right here. right. So thank you for having me and I love the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you. This is great. Jennifer. Thrilled to be here and so nice to be with this great panel. And Dee, I sort of had somewhat of a similar, I never thought I'd end up in HR. I came into HR by way of retained executive search, and I came into retained executive search by way of sales. So I always thought of myself first and foremost as a salesperson. And when I think of salesperson, some people think of that as a negative thing, but I always felt like I was a natural born storyteller. It wasn't until I moved into executive search that I realized it's not just telling the story. There's this ability to identify culture and connectivity about why someone makes a good fit for an organization. So take the skills and experience out of it and just sort of down to the personal connection. Moving in my career from being sort of the retained search hired consultant on the outside, I moved into the corporate side and always had played in spaces that touched healthcare and life sciences. My father was an eye doctor, kind of always regretted that he didn't go to full medical school. I did not have that same aptitude, but I always had this love and passion for the space. And so when I moved into in-house, I purposely made moves to move towards more and more being in healthcare and life sciences. And finally, when I joined Takeda four years ago, it was really just kismet. It's just a great fit because it's a culture that I feel very connected to. Our sort of mantra, if you will, is patient, trust, reputation, and business. We call that PTRB. And a lot of organizations in healthcare and life sciences, you know, have some sort of similar sounding, but I feel so connected to it every day. And I think one of the things that makes my job a real pleasure is that I actually can connect the dots to what I do to ensuring that we bring in tremendous talent and that that talent can help patient population that we work with. I'm now at a point in my career where I'm starting to mentor more people. And that in itself has just been such a joyous gift. I think I always felt like I was in the learning curve and I needed to be mentored. So when people start to ask you for help or support or recommendations, at first it's sort of informal and then you're like, yeah, why not? If I'm helping you, I'm, I'm glad to provide whatever I can. So the mentoring piece for me, I've been very, very lucky. I've been mentored effectively, but also I've had a chance of recent time to really help mentor other people and not just in HR. Trisha? Thank you, Aisha. And I share the same sentiment with others in that this is really exciting to be part of this panel. I would say my entrance into the industry was really kind of serendipitous. It was purely by timing, virtue of good timing and luck. I started out in a traditional setting in public accounting as a CPA by training, and then was recruited through a headhunter into my first biotech company as I was coming out of public accounting. It, it was a very exciting time. This is the early 2000s, so I'm definitely going to be dating myself and just in tech and all things STEM related. Lots of hiring going on, lots of new companies being formed here in San Diego. So it was a very easy transition into this industry at the time. 
for me, mentorship, I think it's very similar to D in the sense that this was much a lot more organic. I didn't have any mentors starting out my career in life sciences. In fact, this space for me was completely novel. My book of business and public accounting was in financial institutions and banking industry. My first entrance into biotech, I had no footing, uh, no relationships, no network. It was purely serendipitous, as I said. I had to work towards building community. It was really a focus on finding trusted advisors and confidants in my space of colleagues and peers, subordinates and supervisors and other folks within the organization cross-functionally trying to find people with common ground, people that I could trust and have uh, a little bit of a deeper dialogue than just in a traditional professional setting. And I also reached out to community and industry organizations as well to broaden my network. But for me, the meaning of mentorship really starts with a, a trusted confidant. And I think those come organically over time. Forbes recently reported that 87% of mentors and mentees feel empowered by the relationship and indicated greater confidence and career satisfaction. Go to lifesciencecares.org to learn more about Project OnRamp, a national life science cares program that is helping underserved students start their careers in life sciences with paid summer internships. I was really uh, inspired to see all three of you on this panel because you have achieved some great career success. And uh, in my role at Life Science Cures, I meet many women who have achieved the height of success. And that's uh, often very visible. But what people don't see necessarily is the scars that it sometimes takes to get to the top. And can you share with you some of the challenges that you may have faced throughout your career and how you have overcome and specifically how mentorship has helped you overcome? And we'll start with Jennifer this time. I think for me, I've had a meandering career. So I didn't necessarily know exactly what I wanted to do. So it was sort of cobbling together things that I was good at. And some of that is a little bit of luck. I think what's been very helpful is I have not been scared or shy, one, to ask for help, and two, to try something I'm not necessarily super familiar with. I know from interviewing lots and lots of women, senior women, there's some of this imposter syndrome. And a fact about the candidacy of women versus men is women wait till they're about 90% qualified for a role before they'll apply. And men will do it at about 75%. That's partly confidence, partly the way we've been raised to think about, you don't put yourself out there unless you're sure you can do it. And I think what's been very lucky for me is I've been willing to try things that I'm not particularly great at and kind of have had the mindset of, if I fail, something else will come along. I know I can work hard. I'll, I'll figure it out. And I've been very lucky that I have had people who've been like, yeah, go for it. Or that's okay if you don't know it. We'll figure out what you don't know. And if we need to, we'll, we'll coach you or we'll supplement. And I've just been very lucky. But I think half the battle is ask. So for me, some of the things to overcome is I never went to grad school. I always was working. I never had time. I know a lot of people who are at the level I'm at that have master's degrees and I don't. I worked. I needed to work. I needed to work and then had a family and I needed to work with my family. So I've always been a lifelong learner, but don't have the formal degrees behind it. I think that's something that's not anything to be ashamed of, but, you know, it's finding your path 
and not waiting for things to be perfect because they won't be. Awesome. Love it. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Trisha. For me, it was really my experience going into this industry. My biggest challenge was honestly a sense of belonging. I was usually the only person that looked like me in just about every room that I entered in this space. I grew up in a community in my childhood of, quite frankly, people that were very similar to me, same ethnic background, similar dynamics socioeconomically. And so that was a familiar safe space. It wasn't until I went to college and then ultimately into a professional setting that all of a sudden I encountered and became aware of other types of people and differences in communities and cultures. And it was honestly extraordinarily refreshing, but also very intimidating. Very intimidating, certainly in the professional setting, because I really did struggle building relationships with other people, even trying to do it in an informal way, in the break room, as an example. A lot of the conversations I didn't always or couldn't always participate in. If they were conversations about European vacations or skiing or golf or clubs that were completely foreign experiences for me, I did not understand. I could not, I just couldn't find a common ground. So I had to really seek that out. I had to really be proactive and find people that I did have common ground with and start to build my own internal community within my professional setting for me so that I could find a place to belong. And that took a lot of work and it took a lot of time, but that was a big struggle. I think the other for me as a, as a big challenge was also how I showed up. As I grew in my leadership roles and became exposed to more senior leadership experiences, Certainly in settings, for example, with executives and others, I was realizing that I was not always as effective in communicating and influencing behaviors in the way I was looking to do in my role. I think a lot of my cultural norms were showing up as a Latina from a very big family. It was very normal for me to express myself in a very passionate way with higher tones and assertiveness. It's very normal for me at the dinner table to have a whole group of people and we compete for airtime. And so talking over one another is very normal for me. But of course, that doesn't always land well in a professional setting. One, building the self-awareness that while I wanted to bring my authentic self forward, I also needed to find techniques and methods and ways in which to land my communications and be as influential and be a good leader in the right way. I had to seek out mentorship for that. I did actively seek that out. As Jennifer mentioned, it's about asking questions and about asking for help. And I certainly did that in safe spaces. Awesome. Very inspiring. Thank you, Trish. Dee. Oh my gosh. So much that I've heard I, re- I can relate to. It was the meandering career, which led to challenges, right? Because there was a time when people hung everything on hiring based on experience. And if you didn't have the right experience, some people wouldn't even look at your resume. It wasn't even up for discussion. It wasn't until a few years ago that people started to understand the idea of a career ladder versus a career jungle gym or a career squiggly. What has been difficult for me? A few things. I'm going to talk a little bit about my background. I'm a child of immigrants, first generation American. So we're Nigerian. That culture was certainly in the house growing up. And I have many siblings and I can relate to what Trish is saying. We just talk over each other. That's just how we communicate which just shocks my husband to no end. But we, we just communicate and going into the workplace, you had to take off your home cloak and put on your work cloak. They have a term for it now called code switching, where you had to leave home and leave all the home stuff and try to navigate mostly on your own 
what was okay and what wasn't okay and watching others. And I think that's where the, the mentoring started for me was I was asking people to mentor me. I didn't really have a word for it. I'd be like, what's the right way to do this? I want to present something. How's the best way? How will it be best received? I have a growth mindset. I'm always looking to learn. I don't have a lot of formal training. I have a bachelor's degree. That's as much formal school as I went to. But always taking opportunities to have people point me to places to do more, learn more, find out more. The challenges were I had to put myself through college. So I had to work the whole time. That was tough, but also character building. Number two, learning on my own and really feeling like this is something that I have to do. I felt very early in life that I would have to put this together. I didn't have an uncle at home to ask. I didn't have an influencer family to ask. Also feeling like I didn't see a lot of myself represented in the rooms that I was in. So it was intimidating to be in those rooms because I wasn't necessarily sure how I was being perceived or accepted or, or not accepted in the room. Everyone smiles, but I didn't really know what mentoring did for me, formal and informal. And I just want to take a moment to talk about that. Most mentoring that I've observed happens informally. That's what happened for me. I had a lot of people basically take me under their wing and coach me one-on-one to help me kind of navigate this new kind of the professional world. recent Cornell University study, mentoring programs enhanced promotion and retention rates for minorities and women by 15% to 38% compared to non-mentored employees. Go to lifesciencecares.org to discover how Life Science Cares one-to-one program is matching students from low-income backgrounds who are first generation and or identify as students of color with life science professionals from diverse roles and backgrounds for career conversations. Thank you, Dee. And I think what you said is great. I mean, I think, and I think it's a great segue to the next question as well around having people take you under their wings and coach and mentor you. The next question that I have is exactly around that, how mentoring can be a benefit to employees in your companies. Because I hear in all your story that you have definitely each built a level of self-awareness about your strengths and your areas of opportunities. You've owned up to them. You've looked to mentors to help you gain that self-awareness. And that's helped you put out to the next levels. Tell me more about how in your own companies, you see the value of mentorship at a pretty uh, macro level, at a pretty big organizational level. I do want to talk a little bit about how, like for me, I used to be someone who thought mentoring had to be more formal. You know, we have a program and it's going to mentor people, going to participate, those types of things. I think there's room for that. I do also feel like it's a barrier to entry. There are a lot of people who could mentor people who maybe don't have the time or bandwidth to go into a whole formal thing, but would be okay to have a lunch, would be fine to advise somebody, would spare half an hour every week or something to mentor, to talk to someone, to answer questions. I'll give you an example. When I was coming into this role, I didn't have any experience as a head of people. I didn't have any experience in biotech. And as I was going through the interview process, I actually didn't even want to go in for the interview. I had one of my mentors say to me, you never say no to an open door. You walk through it and whatever is there, you deal with it and know that you can. And so I went to this interview, not really wanting to go. The reason I'm bringing up mentorship is the flavors that it can come in. I'm in this interview. I'm talking to the man who later became, our seer who later became my boss. 
And the question that he asked that changed everything for me was, hey, you said you don't really want to do HR the way HR is done, and you don't think this job description is going to get the job done. If you were to do it, how would you do it differently? And that's a question that changed everything. I've never been in an interview where someone asked me to pitch to them, not how I'm going to do what's being advertised, but what would you do? And that changed everything because I was ready for that question. And I knew the answer to that question. I never would have been able to compete for a true HR role in the track in the way they were doing it. I considered him, and he later became a mentor of mine. I consider some of these questions, some of these moments, opportunities to mentoring moments versus always looking for this big way to make an impact. If it's not big, if it's not known, it's known to the individual. Because to me, mentoring is still a one-on-one sport. No matter how you slice or dice it, it's still a one-on-one. And anytime you have a one-on-one opportunity to influence someone's life, whether you know them or not, I'm seeking out those opportunities because I've learned over time that those moments that matter, those are the moments that actually drive change in people, individuals, and they take it and they move forward with it just as I have in this role. I don't think that I'd be sitting here today in this role if that question had not been asked. If I didn't get to answer the question that I had the answers to versus the questions that people thought I should have the answers to when I walked into the room. Perfect. Thank you. What we're doing right now in my company is we have some formal mentoring programs, which are great. I think there's a place for those. When you're talking about a global organization and an opportunity for people to connect across cultures, across functional areas, some formality is helpful to have something where people apply. We know there's going to be a commitment on both ends. And I think people can get things out of that. I also totally agree with Dee, though, that there's a lot of informal mentoring. And I think some of that informal mentoring is as, if not more important than the formal. One of the things that we've been standing up is a talent marketplace that basically allows anybody and everybody to put out their shingle to either mentor or get mentored. And it can be something as basic as, I'd like to learn more Japanese or as complex as I'd love to understand how you became an MD scientist and an expert in small molecules. It can be anything and everything, and it allows everybody to be a mentor or a mentee. And I think it's new. We're starting to get some traction with doing this. It takes a little bit of time. People certainly don't have to use the tool, but I think the tool is just a way to help remind people that they can do that. Again, it's another place where maybe some people don't realize that it's okay to just do that. And sometimes having a tool that allows you to engage with some easy technology, giving them permission. And then the hope is maybe that's just the starter discussion, kind of like a quick speed date. And if it's not a fit, great, you go on to the next one. And hopefully then people actually make some great connections and take it offline. Hopefully find the mentor that you need right now for a project with a specific ask to somebody that's an important part of your life and your professional career for years to come. But there's a place for all of those. As a large organization, the goal is to create a couple of ways to provide some structure. And again, I think the big thing is just to let people know it's okay to do that. You don't have to have 20 years of experience to be a mentor to somebody else. And you don't have to be early in your career to be a mentee. I think it's just giving people permission and making sure people are aware that there's a willing population that want to participate. 
that's, I think, the responsibility in an organization our size to have some structure to support it. Thank you, Jennifer. Aisha? For companies and from my own personal experience, I think I, I resonate a lot with what Dee had said in that it's really the highest value level of coaching and advisory is really these informal settings and really through relationships and probably to a lesser degree, some of these more formal programs. I agree with everyone and the full panel, there's a place for that. And for probably larger organizations like the Decaders of the world need to have some structure around that when you're talking about populations of that size. In my experience in smaller biotech and smaller emerging growth companies, it really starts with the leadership and the culture. Do we embrace first a behavior of willingness to share wisdom, to be coaches, and to encourage others to be coached? Embracing a culture that rewards feedback, embracing a culture that rewards acknowledgments of things that are going well, of behaviors and activities and strong leadership. I think it starts with the tone of an organization at the leadership level, and it filters all the way down. When you activate a culture and a momentum of helping your neighbor and helping your colleague and your peers, I think mentorship starts to just happen organically. You have to care about your fellow colleague and wanting to see them succeed. Not everyone's a great mentor and not everyone's meant to be a mentor. It's upon you as a professional, certainly someone that's seeking guidance and seeking coaching to identify those people that care, that are going to look out for your best interests, that are going to be trusted in safe spaces and create a safe space for you to seek that advice and coaching. But it does really help from a company perspective to embrace that kind of a culture. It was really inspiring to hear from each of you. I really liked hearing the differences between the approaches in bigger and smaller companies as well, and the formality of the programs in bigger and smaller companies. Uh, we talked a lot about mentorship. The other layer of that is sponsorship. It's not only going to help you identify your strengths and areas of opportunity, but somebody that's going to be a champion and advocate for you. We need those as well. Can you outline for me, especially as a representative of an organization like Life Science Cares that deals with big and small companies, what role organizations like us or the can play in helping the industry as a whole build a mentorship and sponsorship into our ecosystem? In addition to what we do in-house, I'm very lucky that we have an organization that's built multiple different layers of support, including we have a philanthropy arm of the business. Part of the advantage of being in a large global company is that you can run programs like this. So we have some significant programs designed to support STEM, biopharma. We have a very strong global DEI program, including head DEI officer. And it's not just US centric. We, we approach this globally, knowing that in each geography and country, there's different nuances. But for the purpose of this discussion, I'll focus mainly on the US approach. We really strongly encourage both mentorship and sponsorship. One of the ways to do it is giving your employees information and time to go and do outreach, to go and be involved in the community. It's for the betterment of everybody. 
maybe not everyone should be a mentor, but those that are interested in it and are passionate about the science can represent, provide somebody a view of you can be an African MD scientist in a pharma company that we exist and that these people are here. Just even that kind of representation and that ability to bring people in and give them an opportunity to see what careers in biopharma could look like for all people with all backgrounds. That's part of our cultural value as an organization and it's built in. It's not something that's a, a nice to have or a luxury. It is the way we've structured our organization as part of our own development and part of our own corporate guiding initiatives. I love the intersection that we have of mentoring, of bringing our scientists out to meet people, students, different populations, our ability to work with patient populations in terms of our initiatives around clinical trial diversity. There's a lot of connect points. And again, I think the magic is giving people the time and the information and then letting them choose how they want to be involved. We've seen a lot of really tremendous relationships get built. Even if they don't join us as a full-time employee, we have this great network in our primary geographies in the U.S. where we have part of this biopharma community. It's part of what we do, and I think it's a necessity. I think it's an imperative for the success of the pharmaceutical industry. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Part of your question was also, how can Life Science Cares also be a partner in the sponsorship and the mentorship, which we all know mentorship is different than sponsorship. So sponsorship is more skin in the game. You're really providing cover for this individual to, or individuals that you're, you're sponsoring to have the opportunity at a higher level. I think of sponsorship as something that happens all the time. The only difference is there isn't a, maybe a program or a clear thing. What I think the best companies that do it, and Jennifer, I think your company is spot on with this is really having both, giving people opportunity to have mentorship, to have people to provide them with knowledge. There are two kinds of mentors, right? They're the ones who are doing what you'd like to do. And so you want to see how they did it and try to learn. And then there are people who are maybe not even doing anything you'd like to do, but the way that they are moving through, the way they're leading, the way they're working. I look at Trisha that way. What I mentioned earlier about how I'd been following her career, because she's someone who is made those moves and done those things. And I look at people like that and we may not be on the same path, but I feel I could learn from her. And what I advise people to do, and as we partner with Life Science Cares, is finding those types of people. It's not just, oh, I'm HR, so that's all I'm going to be. There's so many ways that we could help others and support others and sponsor others. I think what we can do best is find opportunities where Life Science Cares has access to folks who have or need mentoring, because I feel like it's not a one way, like we're always giving mentoring. There are, I think, opportunities for us to learn as well. Big piece of it is patient advocacy. We are going to the clinic for the first time at CMT. And one of our big things we want to do is make sure our clinical study represents more than the usual suspects. So we're looking very, very diligently at organizations like Life Science Cares to help support us through there. What has happened in the past is there's a trust gap between minor communities of color because of some of the historical things that have happened. 
and because we sometimes only go to communities of color when we need something. And that just looks suspicious. So the trust is low. But if we're already partnering with organizations like Life Science Cares and others, to already have a partnership where we're mentoring, we're supporting, we're sharing like goals and we're aligned. If we're doing that already, then when our study comes along, then it's normal that we would partner together to do it, having built the trust all along. That's what I think we can do better is really seek opportunities to have a symbiotic relationship, not just only feeling like, oh, we're just giving, we're just giving. Thank you for bringing your tie to patient advocacy and health equity. Yeah, for me, this question of sponsorship, this is really different than mentorship. You're really asking somebody to be an active advocate and champion for you. And there's a sacrifice there. It's going to be a cost. It's going to be someone's own professional equity and professional capital that they're going to put on the table for your benefit. The most meaningful level of sponsorship, I think we kind of saw that start to happen as we started to evolve our boards in our industry, as we started to introduce diversity within our boards. People had to stick their neck out to advocate for other people that were not necessarily the same pedigree or the traditional pedigree, I should say, to introduce them to that setting. Um, I think that's a perfect example of where I think sponsorship can really happen, but I think it does start at the top in order to impact a real meaningful difference within the industry holistically. Right? We've got a seat in our boards, we've got a seat in our executive leadership teams, where there is active sponsorship, where we are bringing up younger professionals, bringing up people that are different, that don't necessarily fit traditional molds, and putting their neck out. Those of us in the industry that do have power and influence need to exercise it and use it. And that's the only way we're ever gonna really see meaningful change. And I'd like to say that I think that is starting to happen. I think our industry is moving in the right direction. I think that's great. And that's the best example in order for others within an organization to see how that's done. We have to model it as leaders within the industry. We've got to show it and demonstrate it. And then I think it will get traction like most things do. There's natural momentum built when you see it transcend at the highest levels within an organization. But sponsorship is a big ask. And that just comes from a level of trust and relationship and long-term relationships. I certainly have worked very hard on some of those relationships within my own network, in my own professional community. It is important for people to understand that that takes time. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of work on the part of the mentee or the person looking for that championship and advocacy. Uh, you really got to work very hard at that to build that. A national survey recently revealed that 67% of businesses reported an increase in productivity due to mentoring. Learn more about how Life Science Cares programming, activities, and membership are encouraging these connections at lifesciencecares.org. I love how you phrased it, Trisha, how uh, sponsorship is really about putting your professional equity on the table for the benefit of somebody else. I think that is a perfect description. And I also like what you said about the fact that our industry has made a lot of progress in that, and I think that is true. And I credit a lot of the strong focus on diversity and inclusion that we've had to date. But at the same time, from the time that I started at Life Science Cares three years ago until now, I've seen a definite shift of the pendulum. It's undeniable. I think three years ago, we had the George Floyd murder. We had a lot of advocacy, and I see that the pendulum is starting to switch back the other way. Even the term diversity and inclusion has such a connotation that is not always positive these days. And I think we have to recognize that. 
what are your thoughts on this and how, do you think that this pendulum will ever swing back the other way and what is it that we can do to make sure that diversity is at the forefront so that we can keep on maintaining the progress that the industry has made i am optimistic that we will find a good medium to the extent the pendulum swings all the way back i don't know but that we will continue to make progress in the right direction i do think so i think history tells us that i think any progressive movement that is really, really hard is always fraught with challenges, with hurdles, with setbacks. But I like to believe that progress will be made ultimately and we'll get to a better place and a better outcome. It may not be exactly in the format that we originally sought out to, but I'd like to say that it will take time and we will get there. And I am optimistic that we will. And my belief is more grounded in the sense that we are a global society. We're a global society, whether we like it or not. And that's not going to change anytime soon. And so for companies in our capitalistic environment, for us to succeed, for us to win and continue to advance our drugs, our therapies and serve our patients, of course, our companies have to look like those that we serve over time. We need to get comfortable embracing differences. We have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's just a reality of, of our world. But I think there's a beauty in it and there's a magic in it. The data supports it. We have all seen lots of data that already tells us this is a win for organizations. The best teams are made up of people with different lived experiences that bring those experiences to bear in their leadership styles, in their communication styles, and decision-making as we embrace differences and realize that it's it's really a power. It's a superpower of our organizations and not a burden. Once we can get there, I think we'll all be better for it. So I am very optimistic that we will get to a good place. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that optimism. We need it. <laughs> Jennifer? I'm also optimistic. Tricia touched on something. We make these drugs for benefits of patients, but we know it's a very, very expensive process. And so we need to make money. These organizations that we're in need to make money. There is truth. There's been research and data to support for years and years now that the more diversified an organization is, particularly at the leadership levels, the more successful the organization is going to be. So there's an absolute business imperative in addition to it's the right thing to do. So some of my optimism might be a little couched in a little cynicism in that commercially to be viable, to play in this global landscape in biopharma, we need to be diverse. We need to have the right level of representation to support a global population in terms of being able to provide them with the right kinds of care. I also think that change is hard, and I think for as many steps we might have gone back, I think that we haven't gone all the way back. And I definitely think progress for us is a little bit like a cha-cha, you know, maybe it's two steps forward, one step back. I think what's most important is if the people in leadership roles are really passionate and committed to this, and they can demonstrate that to their employee population we will continue to chug along and make progress. Is it as fast and as encompassing and as sweeping as I personally like? No, but we're getting there. And and one other conversation I had actually just the other evening with people and talking about sort of the political environment, 
that swings back and forth. What I've been very happy to see, though, is the corporate environment, for the most part, has stayed forward moving and have not necessarily. In fact, in some cases, I feel like some of the large corporate organizations in America have moved to being more progressive when the government has been less so. So I'm cautiously optimistic as well that we will continue to go in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Dee, take us home. I'm going to add my voice to the chorus. I really agree with what both Trisha and Jennifer have said. It's one of those things, I think, in finance, you've definitely heard of the dead cap bounce. It's the opposite of that in this case. Basically, it's when the short-lived burst of upward mobility of something that's really just going to come back down. I feel like we're in the short-lived burst of trying to go backwards, which happens with everything, whether it's the civil rights movement, you name it. There's always a time when someone's going to just try to push it back, but we can't outrun facts. We can't outrun numbers. The fact is by 2050, most people in this country will be mixed in some way, at least with one other race. So they will be people of color in some way, shape or form. We need to cater to that. We've talked about needing to make money to run our companies or run our businesses and to take care of people. In order to care for those people, in order to have the therapies that work for those people, we need to involve those folks, whether in the creation of the drug, the testing of the drug, you name it. I view this as an inevitable debt cap. Of course, it's going to bounce back. A lot of it is, to me, it's politics. It's very political. And what I like to focus on is the humanity. None of us is in this business to do political things. Like if we wanted to be politicians, we would be in D.C. or we would be in Sacramento. We are not politicians. We are not here to do that. This is our job. And as long as we continue to do our job, make it a personal mission of ours to do our job, which is continue to create the most diverse, the most inclusive, and the most all-encompassing workplace and therefore product that we can, that we will continue to move forward. Whatever is good for DC isn't necessarily good for our business. And so we really have to draw a line. So to me, I see it happening. I observe it happening. I don't allow it to affect my stride. And that's what I advise others to. Like what affects us is what we need to focus on. Trisha said it, Jennifer said it. This is something that's good for business, proven, shown. It's one of my own personal heroes, Melody Hobson. She quotes Yoda when it comes to DNI and she says, it's do or don't do. There is no try. So we're going to do it and we're going to continue to do it. So from my perspective, I'm very optimistic, very bullish. That's awesome. I like the optimism. I am also very optimistic. It is a business imperative, like all of you have stated, to have diversity so that we can represent our patients in the best way. And I just love how you phrased it as well. I think this phase that we are in is a probably short-lived, and I think we'll go back, it is my belief. This is an amazing platform, by the way, to help us reach a phenomenal industry leader, to help us make sure that this stays short-lived. So if you have one call to action, to this group of leaders that are listening to this, what is it? My call to action is to lead with courage and not fear. These things are hard, but you really have to be courageous as a leader to bring it. We all have the ability to do it. We should be celebrating diversity. We should be celebrating and encouraging and screaming kind of loud that it is great to have different perspectives, different lived experiences all within our organizations. We will all be better for it. I love that. Lead with courage, not fear. That is awesome. Thank you. That's a tough one to follow. (laughs) 
I'll take the HR people route and say, because it's absolutely, it's leading with courage, but also take the risk on skills and future talent. Worry less about the name brand schools, the years of experience. I think we need to be open to a vast population of talent to make up the future for the biopharma industry. Take the risk. I would rather take the risk on somebody who is passionate, skills, wants to try, and then put the time in to develop them. The more we do that and lean into that, we will naturally create a more diverse and inclusive. When we get so boxed in about it's got to look and sound and be just like this, we really want diversity on all levels, obviously race, gender, ethnicity, but diversity of thought, diversity of background. And I think one of the things to do is be a risk taker when you are bringing in talent and when you're developing your talent. I think opportunity, be a creator of opportunity, no matter where you sit, whether you're a leader for a frontline manager, if you are in the seat and you have the opportunity, do it. Ask the question. The question that I was asked that changed everything. Ask the question, lead with courage, but also manage with courage. Be courageous in whatever role that you find yourself in. If you normally would go to the left, what would happen if we went to the right? When we were hiring at Senti for our CFO, we wanted to have a diverse search. That was the conversation. We're going to have a diverse search because we felt that our C-suite needed that. I noticed that a lot of the resumes we were receiving had a lot of people who had the same years of experience, the same amount, or even more sometimes, but they had never been a CFO. They were like SVP, VP, extra, extra VP, but they had more experience and more exposure. And what I started to notice, it's, it's not that the pipeline isn't there, it's that we are limited. We say it has to be this title. They don't have this title, but we don't look down to see what, it, what they've done what talent we have here. I would put those two, what Trish and Jennifer said together, open up your mind to look at the talent, take that brave and courageous action to bring that person to the fore and have them participate because that's really where it starts, that diversity, that including folks. What I said about Meghan Markle was, the royal family was very happy to have a person of color because it made them look good to the world and they could of course, say, yes, we are a very modern monarchy, but then there's no inclusion. They're like, you have to come and be like us, dress like us, be like us, curtsy like us, look good, but blend in. And to me, that is a, yes, a tokenism thing that ended up happening. So that's what we don't want. And so when I look at that full situation, because it is a job, they are a company. They were very good with the diversity part could not figure out the inclusion, could not figure out the belonging. And that's what we want. I think that's fantastic. We want the inclusion. We want the belonging. And it takes courage. It takes all of it, right? Yeah, we need someone with courage. The queen, someone, the king, somebody needed to be courageous, as Trisha Jennifer said. And nobody, there's no courage. And it is true. I mean, I think we don't want tokenism. We want diverse employees to be at the table and to feel included and not there just to represent, but also to bring their authentic voices themselves to the table. So this is, has been amazing. This has been awesome. And I think this is a very inspiring call to action for industry leaders to continue to have the courage, to take the risk, develop the inclusion so that we can have 
the best at the table. And Clash of Thrones Ramp is, by the way, a great vehicle that does exactly that. It provides that talent and it provides the opportunity to companies to try unproven talent so that they can hopefully enter the industry as permanent employee. So thank you to each of you for your very generous, you know, accounts and wisdoms and it's been fantastic. And I am very optimistic about the future of diversity and inclusion in this industry. And I know that this will reach many, many important leaders. Happy Black History Month. <laughs> thank you for having us. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Aisha. Thank you. It was a pleasure meeting all of you. Moving Forward, Giving Back is a podcast by Life Science Cares. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. You can learn more about Life Science Cares by visiting the show notes or lifesciencecares.org.